0: Hello, this is the Webertarian Podcast, and in this episode I'm going to go over the anime Banished from the Heroes Party, I Decided to Live a Quiet Life in the Countryside. Um, It's one of the anime that aired in the previous season that um, I wanted to talk about. I watched watched it all the way through once, and I remember thinking through a few episodes that... um, it seemed like a good anime to address uh, because it has some economic stuff in it, and some of it's wrong. Um, overall, the anime is good. I very much liked the anime. Um, I I like I like it's it's a it's a very cute rom com in my opinion. Um, simply for the fact that, unlike a lot of rom com, you know, the typical rom com trope in anime is that the characters that are romantically involved tend to be very embarrassed about their um about their romance and very shy about it. Whereas in Banished from the Hero's Party, the romance is kind of out in the open and. They're not embarrassed about it they're not shy about it, and it's not in like a sort of etchy kind of way where it gets to be very erotic at times It's done in a very cute way like i I can't remember the names of the characters i'm I'm gonna rewatch it and like comment on the episodes as I watch um what was it it was I can't remember her name the princess like she'll do things like She'll come home from a long day of adventuring, very exhausted, and her boyfriend has just been watching over his, uh, his apothecary shop the whole day, just working at home, and, you know, she's been out adventuring, and then she comes home, and then she'll, like, plop in his lap and just, like, sit there and cuddle with him and stuff like that. It's very cute, and they're not You know, in in a lot of rom coms, the the characters tend to be almost annoyingly shy and embarrassed about their attraction to one, one another. And they're not in this. And it's not done in an over sexualized way. So it's very cute, in my opinion. And I quite liked that. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just watch through the episodes and comment on them as I see things that I think need or I, that I'd like to. I guess they don't need to be, but I'd like to comment on. So we'll go ahead and uh, start. Okay, so now I am eight minutes and 34 seconds into the first episode and they've gone over some of the main characters um the main character Gideon who while he's in this isolated village that doesn't isn't a particularly wealthy village so they say um that the you know there's not a whole lot of reason why anything such as brigands or even kingdoms would you know take much interest in the village because again like i said it's sort of this isolated village that's not particularly wealthy and is the way he portrays it sort of self-sufficient. And that's kind of the way I remember the village being throughout the whole series. They don't, they don't have like really, um, if I recall correctly, they never, the the village never really just developed any important exports, uh, throughout the series. Um, but so, uh, Gideon, he goes to this village after being banished from the hero's party to live just a sort of slow life, uh, as he puts it, as an apothecary. Um, he hasn't opened his apothecary shop yet, so he just goes out gathering herbs and selling them. Um, and he mentions his desire to save up enough money to, in the future, purchase his own apothecary shop. Now, this is very little yet it in in itself this little bit actually provides a lot of uh economic uh sort of a lot to consider economically um and nothing at this point has been wrong um i might i might comment that it you know um despite not being particularly wealthy or anything um it still would be advantageous to kingdoms to you know have the village as a source of resources even if they're not you know overly abundant or the best at producing them but this would be this would be implementing sort of a comparative advantage sort of economic understanding of economics which wasn't developed in medieval times and I'll that'll be a sort of um caveat to what I'm saying for a lot of this because this is a fantasy setting that takes place in sort of a medieval sort of setting and it unlike a lot of modern anime that takes place in fantasy settings, this isn't one of those fantasy settings where modern day Japanese people have been transported into this fantasy setting bringing with them modern understandings of technology or anything like that. So there's nobody that would bring into this world a modern... understanding of economics to point out that despite this village not being very good at producing anything, it's still advantageous to trade with them because of the economic concept of comparative advantage. Um, Regardless, it's, I mean, even, even without the economic understanding of comparative advantage, medieval kingdoms, you know, they always... More resources and more resources, so they wouldn't have passed up the opportunity to gather resources even from unwealthy villages. Same goat they said uh, in the episode that even brigands don't bother with the village. Um, And again, that's sort of... Historically, brigands, bandits, and the like, they would have taken advantage of isolated uh villages, even if they aren't particularly wealthy and they're mostly self-sufficient because they make easy targets. Um But I'm not going to really harp on that too much because they're basically just trying to build this sort of peaceful setting for Gideon to retire to after he's adopted the name Red and decided to become an apothecary. Um... <coughs> And so at eight minutes and 34 seconds in, he's sort of completing his discussion with the sage. Um, So in this world, every character is born with a divine blessing, which sort of determines what sort of role they'll perform in the world. And Gideon, the main character has the divine blessing of the guide and His sister, his younger sister, has the divine blessing of the hero, so she's destined to defeat the demon lord. And as the guide, it's basically his duty to sort of guide her in her first steps into the world as the hero. Um, Now, again, we'll be talking a little bit more about comparative advantage here, um, because So in this conversation with the sage, you know, um, the sage points out that um, in combat, Gideon has proven to be somewhat of a liability. Um, He's not quite up to the sort of level of all the other members of the party in terms of his combat ability, and therefore he's become something of a burden that they need to um, devote some of their energies to protecting him. And he specifically points out um, Ruti, Gideon's younger sister, the hero, having to uh, protect him in their battle against one of the demon lords. Um, Now, in this, regardless of whether that's true or not, um, I believe later on in the series it's sort of pointed out that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, But regardless of whether that's true or not, to banish Gideon from the hero's party is, again, an error of comparative advantage in this aspect. Because as he points out also in this same conversation, um, Gideon just... He's... he's. uh, everything that gideon is capable of doing someone else is capable of doing better now in the concept of economics and the concept of comparative advantage in economics it's pointed out that in trade um despite even even an they they specifically talk about this in terms of trade between nations but it's equally a, applicable in situations of, uh, you know, individual exchange, um, even in a situation where someone can perform every skill that someone else can to, um, much better. Um, it's still advantageous to engage in trade with that person who is inferior in every way because, Ultimately, it comes down to um, the scarcity of uh, the scarcity of a particularly useful resource, time. Um, even someone who is good at everything only has a scarce amount of time available to them. So, by trading with someone who is less capable than them at doing something, so long as both of them, I yeah. Um, so long as both of them are performing the task that they are best at, even if so, so let's say Gideon um, is best at gathering herbs, which we get a very strong sense that that's that's just what he's good at. Um, by even even if um, even if let's say the sage is better at gathering herbs than Gideon. By Gideon devoting his energies to gathering herbs, he frees up scarce time that the sage would need to devote to gathering herbs so that he can devote his time to the thing he is best at, which we get a strong sense throughout the series that he is best at magic. So that's comparative advantage. By by even... By engaging with, in trade with someone who's worse at you than everything, it's still, because of the scarcity of time, allows you to allocate your time towards whatever you are best at, and in the end, that results in a greater amount of resources being available to everybody. Whereas, if you just... So let's say, you know, the sage is, you know, he's better at gathering herbs and he's also better better at magic. If they just get rid of Gideon and the sage has to devote all his time to both magic and gathering herbs, then his time is split. Whereas if he had just focused entirely on magic, then they'd have more magic and more herbs than if they, you know, just get rid of Gideon. Um, and I, I believe this is alluded to even... Well, not specifically this. Um, later in the series... Well, I, I won't go into later in the series. But basically, it's it's shown that Gideon wasn't useless. Um, which is what the sage is implying here. That Gideon just... It's better if he's not in the party. Um, but like I'm saying here... Um, just on a purely economic perspective, so long. So, let let's assume that he is dragging the party down because they have to. Um, it's a risk to have him in the party as a combatant because then they have to devote some of their energies to protecting him. Suppose that's true. It would still be advantageous to keep him in the party and just. Mm, allow him to stay out of combat and provide sort of in a military sense, logistical support. Um, like in, in any army throughout history, the, um, logistics of supplying resources is a major part of military strategy. Um, in fact uh in Sun Tzu's art of war there's significant significant portions of it devoted to logistics allocation of resources and the benefits of um making enemies your allies for the purposes uh purposes purposes, purposes of um, Receiving some of their resources in exchange, or if you can't make them allies, um, then capturing their resources, because it helps logistically with the support of your army, because your armies require resources. Um, the other thing is that a, a strategist, and this isn't so much a libertarian thing, but... Um, you know, even even a weak unit in an army can be property can be utilized if you know put in the hands of a competent strategist, um, and that's not merely as you know a pawn to be sacrificed. Um, even weak units are useful in a military sense. Um, it's been a long time since I've read the Art of War. But I'm I'm almost certain that in there you would find something because it covers it covers everything. Like there's a lot of really popular quotes from the Art of War, and those barely scratch the surface of what is contained within Sun Tzu's Art of War. And I can almost guarantee that there's something in there regarding the utilization of weaker um, weaker units in, within a military for strategic pur- purposes. And in all probability, it wouldn't be something like, oh, you can sacrifice the weaker units or anything like that. Um, because um, one of Sun Tzu's rules of war was that um, you don't you don't sacrifice resources or units or soldiers that it is unnecessary to sacrifice. And um, you try to, minimize casualties in basically every way you can in fact the ideal general in Sun Tzu's art of war is capable of winning a war without losing either a single soldier on his in his army or in the other enemy's army a uh, a truly great general is capable of winning without ever having to engage in war um but anyway uh i'll go ahead and continue in the episode and then comment when next something comes up that i feel needs commenting on oh uh the the other thing i as i started watching and it came back to him like lying in bed thinking about things it it reminded me the other thing that i meant to say that i completely forgot about was actually just the simple the simple statement that he is, or not simple statement, it wasn't a statement, but the, the scene, you know, him gathering herbs, selling those herbs, and then commenting that, you know, he's saving up to buy an apothecary. This in itself is a big economic lesson. Um, so the fact that he is able to gather and sell herbs at a profit, Indicates that uh, that you know the, the the demand the demand for those herbs is high enough for it to be considered a good use of his time to collect herbs rather than him doing something else. So when you're engaging in an entrepreneurial endeavor such as gathering herbs, you have to weigh the uses of your scarce time against each other so let's say he could gather herbs or he could um engage in carpentry Um, so he has to weigh his proficiency with those two skills against each other alongside the potential earnings he can acquire from those two skills when once utilized so for him to arrive at the conclusion that the gathering of herbs is the best use of his time, so long as he's thinking about it economically, the indications there are that the demand for his time once allocated to gathering of herbs is greater than the demand for his time once allocated to uh, the crafting of, say, furniture or something. Um, And that might be due to... That could be due to any number of factors. That could be due to a greater demand for herbs within the village than is currently being supplied. Um, It could be due to an overabundance of carpenters within the village. It could be due to... Uh, if there's an overabundance of carpenters in the village, then that would mean that um, carpentry is not profitable, and if it's not profitable, then that means that um, you know that that to add more carpenters to the market within the village would be a misallocation of resources because they've already got what they need, um, and there's greater demand elsewhere. Um, it could be because as I was saying with the whole comparative advantage thing that he's just better at gathering herbs than he is at carpentry. So if he can produce more herbs than he can produce, um, you know, furniture in that same amount of time as it, you know, pertains to its sale on the market, then that indicates to him that it's a better allocation of his scarce labor. Um, And then through the savings that he acquires in that, so the profits that he acquires from, you know, selling herbs, for there to be profits, it has to, the the demand for his herbs has to exceed the cost of gathering herbs, which the costs of gathering herbs are his time and, you know, his basic, um, the costs of his, his basic costs of living, um, so there has to be greater demand than there is for the supply of his time and um, the supply of all of the the you know necessities for his cost of living. So if it exceeds that cost. Again, that indicates that there's a high demand for the herbs within the market. And his savings, um, for him to save up enough to purchase the land on which to build the apothecary, as well as to pay a carpenter to build the shop, um, that... Again, has to be weighed against all the other uses for that land, and the carpenter's scarce labor for it to be profitable. So, um, if it, ter- it so, if he buys the land, um, and then builds the builds the apothecary shop, he's taking a risk here. That's one of the big parts of being an entre- entrepreneur. In fact. Um, the Austrian school of economics defines being an entrepreneur as being the person who takes on the financial risks of engaging in an economic endeavor. So it's not necessarily the person that comes up with the ideas who is the entrepreneur by the Austrian definition. It is The person who takes on the burden of the financial risk to ensure that a product can be brought into existence, basically. Um, So he, by making the decision to save up to purchase land and then to purchase a shop, um, is taking on the financial risk, the cost that comes with the buying of the land and the shop. And because if it turns out that it isn't profitable, um, then the shop will fail and he will end up having to sell the land. And hopefully, that through this process, eventually, hopefully someone that can use the land in a profitable way will acquire it. Um, And again, for someone to acquire that land and then utilize it in a profitable manner is an indication that he has utilized the land in a way that meets greater market demands than the land and the labor utilized to build the shop and maintain the shop would on their own. Um, So yeah, (laughs) you... If, if you take the time to think about what the implications of that economic act of gathering herbs, selling the herbs, saving the money, buying the land, building the shop, and earning profits, if you take the time to consider what the economic implications of those acts are, there's a lot there to think about. Okay, so I've finished watching the episode, and there's a few other things that I could comment on. Um, I won't get too deep into them though, because they're they're really basic things and I don't really need to go a whole lot into them, but I I felt like I should comment on them just for the sake of completeness. Um, so there's he goes on to uh, the his friend, who is a carpenter, his, that friend's like son gets like this illness. And he needs to, uh, the, the illness, the only cure for it is some herb that's in the mountains that he could go and gather. Um, and he makes the decision to, well, I guess this part isn't really anything I need to comment on, but he does go into the mountains to gather the herb. Um, one of the things that happens before that though is that um an adventurer's party tries to uh ask him to guide them through the mountains because he's you know he goes into the mountains to gather herbs on a regular basis so he's very familiar with the mountains and he turns that down even though he'd get paid well and the uh I guess you'd call her the manager of the adventurers guild basically promises him that, you know, if he does this, he'll advance in grade within the adventurers guild or advance in rank. Um, And still he declines. Um, And this is because he'd prefer to um, just sort of, he, he doesn't want it to be known who he was before uh, retiring to this village. Um, and then there's also sort of this sense that you know he just still he he'd prefer to just live the simple life. He doesn't want to advance in rank and become an adventurer. Um, and so, in a lot of schools of economics, you know, they I've mentioned before, there's this concept of homo economicus, which is the 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 man which always acts in his economic interest. And a lot of economic models are built off of this this notion of a man that follows the um, sort of economic signals. Um, so, you know, when something's profitable, they'll pursue the profit. When something's not per- profitable, they won't pursue it, things like that. Whereas the Austrian school of economics is all built off of this foundation of human action, which is basically just individuals acting in pursuit of their goals. And it might not necessarily be that their goal is an economic action. Um, And because of this, um, when you're reading books like, say, Murray Rothbard's um, Man, Economy, and State, they use this sort of language such as um, what they call uh, psychic benefits or psychic profits, which in this instance would be what he is pursuing here. So even though it would be more financially profitable for him to you know help these adventurers and guide them through the mountains he is deriving a psychic benefit or a psychic profit from refusing to and that psychic benefit or psychic profit is the sort of rest and relaxation which he is hoping to retire himself to rather than a life of adventure and excitement um he just wants to live a normal peaceful life um so, and then, you know, the the friend, even though he declined to go into the mountains, this friend asks him to go and get the herbs, which presumably will... S- I, I can't remember whether they actually say the son will die or not, but, you know, he asks him to go and get these herbs to cure his son's illness. Um, and he does. Um, and... Uh, the exchange that happens as a result of that is the 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 friend promised he'll do whatever he wants in exchange for him helping to cure this illness um and what that is is again it's it's a person making the taking the individual action the human action weighing what he thinks is most profitable to him which in the case of his friend is the psychic benefit that comes from the psychic profit of saving the life of his son or curing it might not even be saving the life i think they just might i think they mentioned something like um long-term like uh long-term effects of the illness so it might have just been that like he 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 would have been uh you know somewhat disabled in some way as a result or something i think they called it white eye so maybe it would have been like blindness i can't remember but um you know it, it was worth that for the father the the when he was weighing what is most valuable to him um the, the choices are basically anything that he could possibly do for Gideon or anything, anything he could possibly give to Gideon. He offered anything Gideon wants. So that could have been all of his possessions, his life, anything. Um, and the wellness of his son, because it's, it's, sort of more implied that this just would have affected his son's health long-term, not so much killed him. Um, and in that sort of weighing of what is most valuable to him, he determined that the wellness of his son is more valuable than anything he has. Now, uh, Gideon, um, after having you know completed this task for his friend... Just asks his friend to help him build his apothecary shop, which he had been saving for, um, and he does it just for free labor. He still pays for all the supplies and all that. That's just the his friend is a carpenter, and he just does it for labor for free. Um, and again, this is this is while. You know, some on the uh the economic left might look at this and call this exploitation because um, you know, that the son is entitled to health care or something like that. In this scenario it's taking the position of a voluntary exchange where someone is exchanging the life-saving services that they are able to provide um, for, you know, the labor to build a shop. And again, like, a, a perfectly valid question that some on the economic left might raise in regards to this is how do you put a price on the services that might either, you know, prevent someone from suffering long-term, uh, long-term harm to their body or even death. How do you price that? And, um, you know, you could say that, you know, there, there is no price on that. It's, you know, you could, a lot of people would pay anything to save a life or, you know, whatever. But in a market that price is determined by demand and if we're going by Austrian economics which again like I've mentioned before Austrian economics is sort of the school of economics I follow most closely the value of everything within the market is imputed through the chain of demand so the value of the healthcare care services is determined by what the people consuming those healthcare care services are willing to pay for it. And what they're willing to pay for it is, you know, um, determined through the competition within the market to consume those scarce goods. So, like, say, you know, the services of a doctor, there's only, um, you know... Again, time is scarce. So, you know, um, the people demanding the services of that doctor have to compete for the scarce time that that doctor has available to them. And then through that competition, ultimately the market arrives at a price. Um, and then the doctor, the costs of him providing his services are computed through all of the doctors that would provide a similar or the exact same service, um, having to compete for the resources or assets that are required to provide those services. So they are in in turn um, competing for the, Assets required to perform their healthcare services. Again, imputing their the the price upon those assets by competing with all the other people that are demanding those assets, and then the uh, resources required to manufacture those assets. The price of those is, again, being imputed upon them by all the people that manufacture the assets competing to purchase those scarce resources, and so on and so forth, until you get down to the most basic element in the chain of production, uh, which they call the highest order good in the Austrian school of economics. Um... So yeah, I I guess that's that's about it. Um so I'll catch you later.